Well, the story I heard was of a crowded subway station in Washington, D.C., and a man looking somewhat deranged came down the steps and looking over the crowd began to point to individual people and say, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. He went through almost the entire subway station, everybody turned their eyes to see him and everybody was quiet and wondering what he was saying, you're in, you're out, could have possibly meant. Many people, of course, thought of the call of God and the selectiveness that we oftentimes hear described of when we speak of God choosing certain people. It says that Jesus went up on the mountains and called to him those whom he desired. Out of this large crowd that was pressing in on him, so crowded that he had a, an escape plan of a, a boat, Jesus called a few whom he desired who came to follow him. You're in. You're out. Is that what he's saying? You're in to the crowd you're out. It's a very honest question that we need to ask and we need to answer because it's one of the chief questions that I hear from uh, believers and unbelievers alike. Is God fair in his selection? God chose Abraham, called this one man and his wife to leave their country and go to another country, and he says, I will bless you and your family, more numerous than the stars, he says, will I make your descendants. You will be a great nation. More than that, you will be many nations. But we read on and we find that out of Abraham come multiple sons. And Isaac becomes the son who receives Abraham's blessing. And his half-brother Ishmael becomes another nation that doesn't follow God. Still again, Jacob is born to Isaac. Jacob's twin brother Esau was the older one who should have received the blessing of his father, should have been the inheritor of these great promises. And yet from the very beginning, even before the children are born, God says, Jacob will be the inheritor of the promise. Esau will become another nation, Edom, who God looks over, passes over. Still we find throughout history that the numbers dwindle further and further, and Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and many of them eventually fall away from following the Lord and the land that God had promised all of his people and given them becomes smaller and smaller in terms of those who are truly following God. To the point where it's just Judah essentially left, one of Jacob's 12 sons. And all of these other nations are no longer following the Lord. You're in. Judah, you're out. Everyone else, 
And that's what it seems like. It seems like at first glance that that's just God's peculiar, somewhat fickle choosing and not really fair. We ask the same question today. Why does God choose to reveal his gospel in certain places and other nations, whole countries, tribes, people groups never never even have a chance to hear the gospel? You're in. You're out. Is that how God works? Or is there something more behind the the, the mind of God that he reveals to us and how he works to bring salvation to the whole world? We read in the book of Revelation that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will come and worship God and be a part of his salvation. We read earlier, as God called Abraham, he said, through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And it seems like even that his own children ignore that promise or that God is unfaithful to that promise as, 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 uh, as Ishmael uh, is cast away. But then he reiterates it when Abraham's grandson Jacob comes around. And he says to Jacob, again, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What an amazing promise on the one hand, and also an awesome responsibility on the other hand. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4 of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to see how God works through a few to bring salvation to the many. He begins this with this description of this huge crowd that gathers around Jesus to hear him teach, but more specifically here, to be healed. They had immediate felt needs and they were coming to receive healing, it says. Verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him. And these chapters progress to where Jesus describes what we'll look at next week as what his true family is. His family thought he was out of his mind. Other people thought he was out of his mind or had a demon And Jesus says, look, my true brothers and sisters, they're the ones who hear my voice and follow me. They're the ones who hear the command of God and do his command. The family looks very different than what we tend to think about it. Even Judas Iscariot seemed to be a part of the family by all accounts. And yet in the end, we know his end wasn't part of the family. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He presses in, and where we think that God is fickle in his own choosing, he presses on the responsibility of us as human beings, as those God has given free will. And he says, look, my word, my teaching, me, myself, I'm like a seed that's planted 
And God's the one who causes the growth. But you have control over certain things. You have control over cultivating that soil. And ask yourself the question, what kind of soil have you cultivated to receive my word? Is it, is it rocky soil? Where things spring up quickly. Where your immediate need, you're healed fast. You get excited about it. But then as soon as things get difficult, you fall away. Or are you, he gives four examples, but the last one is, are you cultivating good soil where my word can take root, where you are sure and steadfast in your growth? My kingdom involves growth, Jesus says. In the fourth week, we'll look at what that growth looks like because it's very surprising and it brings us back to this first week. He says, look, my kingdom starts very small, like the seed of a mustard tree or bush. It's one of the smallest seeds in the garden, and yet when it grows, when it grows, it becomes the largest of the garden plants. So large that the birds can nest in it, can even give shade. I'm teaching you something about the principle of my kingdom growth, Jesus says. It may look impressive when big crowds gather around to listen to the teaching, but true growth comes in investing in a few so that it goes deep and so that it can go wide. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He chooses 12 out of this group who are going to walk alongside of him and live life with him every day for the next three years so that they can be prepared to do the work of ministry. This has always been the practice of God and it goes back even to the calling of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and always God starts small with the intention of growing bigger. And he always, he always is sovereign over that growth in choosing certain people. And he always gives the people he calls responsibility on which success or failure seems to depend. I'm going to go a step further and even say that it does depend. He gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel responsibility for kingdom growth, to cultivate good soil and not to hoard the blessing in one nation, but to make God's salvation known even before Jesus comes to all of the people's of the earth and the obvious thing that we can see throughout the Old Testament is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and every one of the 12 sons fail over and over and over again. And what's worse, you come to the church history and you look around at churches and denominations and nations and even our own congregation and you have to say, 
that we fail over and over and over to make God's salvation known to the nations. How many blown opportunities, friendships we've developed that then they go off and we lose the opportunity forever. How many times have we failed to make his name known? But but here is the good news. Jesus went up on the mountain and he called those to him whom he desired and he numbered them 12 disciples. And that great crowd that had followed around him or gathered around him were from Judea and Jerusalem, the center of the hub of activity for the Jewish people even to the time of Jesus, but not only that, they stretched south into the region of Idumea. Idumea, by the way, was a mixture of Jewish people and the descendants of Esau, who was called Edom. The nation was called Edom. They'd mixed for south. And they now lived in a part of Judea or Judah that was originally part of the land that God gave the 12 tribes. But it wasn't just Idumea. They came from beyond the Jordan, the other side of the Jordan, a region called Perea. If you go back to the book of Numbers, you find that God had given the promised land that extended to the Jordan, but when the 12 tribes came and settled the land, some of the tribes settled east of the Jordan and they petitioned Joshua and they petitioned God whether they could stay there, whether they needed to go into the actual land. And God said, yes, you can stay there. Perea was a part of that land. Beyond the Jordan. But not only that, they came from the west, the seaside, Mediterranean seaside towns of Tyre, Sidon, west. And north. And the picture for us is opaque, but the picture for them would have been clear. Twelve people. And representing a region that represented the original land occupied by the twelve tribes of Israel. What Jacob and his 12 sons failed to do and what we failed to do, Jesus was accomplishing. Jesus was gathering together this land that had been promised to them and saying this salvation is for you and even though all of your fathers and grandfathers and ancestors failed to accomplish and even stay faithful themselves, The gospel is going to you. My salvation is going to you because what you fail over and over to do, I am powerful to accomplish, he says. And we read in Acts 1 that in fact the gospel began in Jerusalem after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and then extended up into Samaria, which is another region 
that is encompassed by representing these other cities we listed today, but had fallen away from God. But not only that, it would extend to the ends of the earth. And in you, all of the nations, all of the families, all of the peoples of the earth shall be blessed because it is not ultimately up to you to accomplish these purposes. And yet... And yet I've given you responsibility in the process. How can these logically incongruous ideas, contradictory ideas be true? And it's only in God's economy somehow that it can happen. That he gives us responsibility and yet keeps his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes. what's amazing in these purposes is that God gives us reasonable, measurable tasks to accomplish. He doesn't call us to be Billy Grahams and preach to thousands of people, at least not most of us. He gives most of us responsibility to preach the gospel to our, our children, our friends, co-workers. Proclaim it to our neighbors, to our wife, to our husband, to remind one another day after day to preach the gospel to ourselves day after day in very bite-sized, measurable chunks. But know that he gives you this responsibility. And when you fail to share the good news with others, to be a blessing to others, it ends up closing in on yourself and you... Lose the gospel for yourself. The Jewish people in the time of Jesus had by and large come to that point. There were some who were still faithful. But even the crowd seemed to gather to Jesus not so much because of his teaching and his message that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ, come. Rather they came to have their sicknesses healed. They came to see a show. And yet through Jesus' own sovereignty, his power, he quiets the demons so that they can't influence his work negatively. He has a boat ready. He escapes from the, the, the snares of the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the other powerful ones and yet through all of these things, he shows himself powerful in one of the ways is he calls 12 out so that through those 12, thousands, and then tens of thousands, to the point where my daughter asked earlier this week, how many people are Christian in the world? And we don't know how many of them are true disciples and how many of them, like Judas, Iscariot, just appear to be or follow or present in his churches. But over a billion people today claim the name of Jesus as their religion. Now I want to challenge us in this area of discipleship here today because I think so many of us are prone to going through the motions and putting ourselves in positions of danger and not 
being faithful to truly follow Jesus. You see, did you notice that Jesus called these disciples and he specified a purpose, it says, he appointed the twelve so that, anytime you see the word so that in the Bible, it's a really important so that, two really important words, the purposes that God does things, that Jesus does this so that first they might be with him. If you think that you can follow Jesus and be a a Christian without spending time with Jesus, you're believing a a lie of the evil one. There is no way that you can have a, a close relationship with anyone and see them twice a year. Talk to them once a year. It's just not possible. And Jesus comes to us and he says, I want more than just religious obedience. I want relationship with you. I want you to know me. I know you. But the only way for you to know me is to to spend time with me. The gathering together of for worship on Sundays is an important part of that. Reading your Bible on your own, what a blessing we have to live in this time and place where all of us are able to read and have access to the Bible itself. You probably have hundreds of copies of it available to you between the internet and your phones and the Bible, but do you spend time in actually reading it? By going to God in prayer and speaking with him audibly. We've talked about this recently, and so I won't belabor the point. But saying words, intelligible words, more than just saying I'm praying continually and I think about God all the time. That doesn't make for a relationship with God any more than it would make for a relationship with a friend. Jesus called them to himself that they may be with him. Jesus, when he goes away to heaven and is ascended into heaven after the resurrection, he says, look, I am sending you my Holy Spirit so that I will be with you always. You will be with me always in some kind of special arrangement. Jesus is with us now in a different way than he was in Old Testament times. Do you take advantage of that? He said also that he might send them out to preach. To proclaim, to be a herald of the good news. This word in the Greek, to preach, means to herald. Now look, God hasn't called all of us to be preachers, thankfully. You might wish that he hadn't called me to be a preacher. He's called some of us to be preachers. He called them, the apostles, to be preachers. But he has called us all to be proclaimers. A herald is somebody who goes and tells of the good news. When something great around you happens, a baby is born in your family, you can't wait to tell everyone about it. 
When somebody you really like is elected to office, you can't wait to tell other people about it. In Jesus' day, when a king came and conquered and released people from an oppressive king, they all spread the news in a hurry because they didn't have the World Wide Web. But it got out quickly because the people were heralds of this. And we are all called to be heralds. And more, just as much as that, we are all called to pray for those who do preach. Apostle Paul, over and over through his letters, asks his congregants in the churches that he planted to pray for him and to pray for those who are preaching the gospel because the preaching power is dependent on the people of God praying for that preacher and for the power of the gospel to work in people's hearts. Are you a herald of the gospel and are you praying for the preachers of the gospel? And lastly, it says that he called them so that they might have authority to cast out demons in this one is a trickier one, and we're really going to address it more next week when we look at the accusation that Jesus faces that he was Satan or one of Satan's demons who is coming to masquerade as gods. And we'll look at that whole call to uh, cast out demons and the activity of the demons. But let me just summarize this briefly here. First, I believe that demonic activity is still very true today, and there is a spiritual warfare going on around us. Second, I believe that many preachers elevate this warfare to a point that's similar to just over-dramatizing and glorifying violence in movies and in media to excite people and to bring fear, and it's very misunderstood in today's culture. Third, I believe that it's very clear from the scriptures that Jesus gave specific power to his disciples, authority to these apostles that he has not given to all people, including his preachers. There are no apostles today, even though some choose to go by that name. This was the twelve. Let me stop there for just a second and say, in Jesus, that there is power to cast away all influence over our lives, whether it be physical conditions or spiritual conditions. Spiritual warfare is a very real thing, and just as it increases in intensity in our lives when we're, we're following God and doing His will, so it increased in intensity, it seems, at the time when Jesus himself comes to the scene. And so the, the, the amazing numbers of these demons are probably best explained by the emergence of God himself on the scene to bring salvation to the nations through a few. And when we talk about this spiritual warfare, if we try to do these things apart from the power of Jesus himself at work, then we are playing with fire and we are not prepared to play with it. 
But when we depend on Jesus and are leaning on him and his power, we need not fear any of this demonic activity. Because Jesus has shown us, promised us, and proved it by delivering these people and giving his apostles power to deliver people from demons that he frees us from this demonic activity. Now that doesn't mean that every physical illness is going to be put away and oftentimes mental illness accompanies or is confused with demonic activity and it is tough to distinguish. And while Jesus showed his power physically in healing many, he has not given us as preachers, us as followers of him, the same kind of powers that he displayed in healing physically. Sarcasm is a dangerous thing, isn't it? As you've probably seen the Babylon Bee on the internet, it's this uh, sarcastic website. Some things are funny and some things are too true to be funny because they're painful. And I have to reference one of them. I won't even say the preacher by name, but somebody who claims to be able to heal a lot of people. It had a picture of him sitting in a hospital and the headline read something like, so-and-so spends all day healing children at the local children's hospital. Why does that not happen? Why do the people who claim to have healing powers not go to places where people actually have healing that needs to be done? Because it's a farce. Because they're not pointing people to Jesus, they're leading people away from Jesus. Because they're not actually making disciples of Jesus, they're making disciples of themselves. And the cost of discipleship for those 12 disciples, at least as far as tradition goes, is that all but one met their end through martyrdom. The cost of discipleship is a complete giving away of ourselves because Jesus has given himself completely for us. The cost of discipleship is not only following Jesus, it's letting Jesus shape you and mold you and it takes time into being leaders who follow Jesus. Leaders who lead other people to Jesus. And in fact, the model of discipleship that Jesus sets up is that we would be invested in by some. We would teach the gospel to others, and then they, like Paul did with his apprentice Timothy, would be faithful to pass it on to others and still to others. Two men who started the gospel ministry, the parachurch organization, the Navigators, were committed to this model. Dawson Trotman, Leroy Imes, came out of the military where they were dedicated to teaching a small group of men who then would teach other men. And they said some challenging things, and sometimes they probably went overboard in some of their legalism and discipline. They said, look, as you're teaching men, oftentimes it will become apparent who's truly desiring to grow and who's just in it for the looks of things. Sometimes you have to make the difficult decisions. Press people on difficult places because disciples, they said, are made, not born. Jesus didn't pick the most influential in society 
In fact, he tended to pick the outcasts. We don't know details of seven of these 12 men, but we know that one of them was a hated tax collector, and the other four were basic fishermen, not the educated one, ones of the culture, but ones who were teachable, ones who were desiring God's kingdom and not their own, ones who were committed for the long haul to be shaped in uncomfortable ways because Jesus was the one who could shape them into the people that mattered most. Discipleship is the call to all believers, not just a few who are called to be preachers. Are you investing in others? Before that, have you allowed somebody or some other people to invest in you? Are you doing the work of the gospel? Jesus will accomplish his purposes whether you do your part or not. He'll accomplish his purposes in you when you fail often as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and all of the other sons did and all of us do. Because he's the one who's faithful through it all. He's the one who continues to disciple us and love us and love us even when we fall on our face and fail and and mess up. He's the one who expanded his kingdom back to the original boundaries of of, of Israel and then burst those boundaries to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. The gospel fails to reach people groups, even whole nations, when a few people fail to pass it on to their children. You go back to the time of Noah. All nations descend from that one point. And yet some of Noah's sons failed to pass it on. Please. If you have experienced the hope of the gospel and Jesus' work in your life, pass it on to others so that whole nations will not be lost. Let's pray. Our Father, we call you that as your children who look at your great purposes and your great power and we, we can't understand and fathom them. Like little children not being able to understand complex economic problems. But Lord, we've seen your faithfulness over and over again. And we cry out to you, Lord, how long? How long will we endure such suffering? And at the same time, we look to Jesus as our hope. In our sure salvation. Confessing the many times we've failed in this work of discipleship. But stepping the next step forward. With hope that exceeds any of our expectations or dreams. Because you have accomplished your salvation and brought us into your family. And continue to expand your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.